Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Hans's uh, podcast where we aim to bring the best minds in the space on each week to talk about how they build, grow and manage their protocols or businesses uh, as a guiding light for the next generation of builders in Web3. Uh, today, for the first time, I'm fortunate enough to finally record an episode with someone in the same time zone as I am. Uh, that someone is Josh Reyes, uh, co-founder and CEO of Minky. Uh, good morning, Josh. How are you going? Hey, hey, Archie. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, more than welcome. Uh, to set off, to set us off, could you just give a brief explanation of uh, what it is that you do at Minky? Yeah, so I'm the CEO and co-founder of Minky. So, as CEO, you really manage everything. We're still a small team now of five um, across Europe and mainly Brazil. So, uh, managing the team, managing growth, um, yeah, getting us to the next step. And could you could you give the quick explain like I'm fire version of what it is that Minky does? Yeah, so Minky is a self custody DeFi wallet that allows people to buy, send, save, and uh, spend their crypto in emerging markets. So uh, my co-founder is actually Brazilian, so we focus m- most of our efforts in Brazil. That wasn't always the case. But essentially, in any emerging market, we try to create the best solution for people to protect their wealth, uh, live 100% in crypto, and still interface with their local economy. What was your background before coming in into Minky? Yeah, so started in crypto in 2017 with another product called Sendy, which was very similar to Earn.com, if anybody rem- remembers that at the time, where you could pay people in emails with tokens. Essentially, if they open your email, you'd earn a token for a microtransaction. But before that, I was working in email automation, which is very different than crypto, but I was the head of growth at an email company called SmarterMail, where I yeah, was the first employee there and scaled that up to uh, 25 people when we left, and that's where I met Marcos as well. And were you sort of getting involved in crypto as a bit of an ex- extracurricular at that time? Yeah, I started investing myself in 2017, just a little bit of the little money I had. I I think that was my first full-time job uh, late 2016, so it wasn't a lot. But uh, yeah, that was the first time I started investing. I also ran my my university's investment club back in, I guess that was 2014. So I was a big, actually a Bitcoin bear at the time. I remember trying to transfer my money to Mt. Gox and just thinking this thing would completely shut down or be shut down by government. So, and a lot of things were proven right at the time, but of course, like, I think I didn't really understand the underlying technology and the community behind it. Uh, but yeah, the first time I guess I'd started dipping my toes in was 2014. And then where, where did the push come from to sort of go in and build Minky? Yeah, the push to start building Minky. So First, I guess maybe I'll go back to 2017, like when I finally capitulated and decided to buy crypto uh, and then eventually started to build it in 2017 as well. That, that was really, I guess, maybe not the dawn of Ethereum. Ethereum had been around, I guess, for a couple of years at that point. Um, the ICO had happened much earlier, but that was when people first started, finally started building on it. I think MakerDAO was one of the first DeFi applications available at the time. And my thesis at the start was that Bitcoin could really only exist with these kind of centralized nodes to give people access to it. And then MakerDAO came around and it was like, okay, you could actually build the entire financial system. It's not just um, 
buying Bitcoin and holding it. It's borrowing, lending, um, doing everything that you need to do with money. Uh, and you could finally do that without a centralized party. So that was what was finally got me into crypto. So what finally got me into Minky in 2021, it was really just a case of hating what was really popular in the last cycle. We learned a lot in 2017 about building for someone that was new to crypto. But then when 2021 came around, the new to crypto popular product other than NFTs were these C5, D5 front ends, usually built on Luna and Terra, which I also didn't like. Um, this is a mechanism was very broken, which again was proven to be true. But the system where you would sign up with a C5 provider, you would get a pretty good yield for but in comparison to your bank, at least. But compared to the amount of risk they were taking on, you would actually get a very small chunk of that. So most providers were paying 5 to 8%, but if they put it in Anchor, they were getting 20%. And I just thought that was the antithesis of the entire crypto space. It was kind of like why Bitcoin was created, was so you didn't have banks which would take undue risk with your money. And now you're having the exact same thing happening in crypto. So I thought, hey, yes, this is awesome that people can access these yields, but it shouldn't be in this model. It should be in a self-custody space. So we created a, a simple wallet at the time where people could acquire USDC, and then it was completely gasless. Um, they just could use that USDC and plug it into DeFi, essentially, and start earning that full yield without any essentially middleman where we would take a fee on the yield. So that was the original, I guess, Minky, it's a response, but then it's really evolved since then. Um, and the space has changed a lot too in just these last 12 months. So where, where does Minky generate its yields then to, to sort of maintain that risk-free uh, air quotes stance? Yeah, not risk-free at all, <laughs> but uh, right now, I guess the biggest thing is we want to generate real yields, which is the, I guess, a popular term in the space after Luna or after some of the other things that have happened. Uh, a lot of the past CFI yields were generated through um, the spread between uh, the GBTC premium, essentially. So GBTC was this investor-only product, a sophisticated investor-only product that you can buy OTC essentially to get Bitcoin through your brokerage or your stock brokerage. So because that was the only way people who invested in stocks really could get Bitcoin, that would trade at a premium. So what these products would do was essentially take people's Bitcoin or take people's crypto, uh, deposit it into GBTC to get the shares at a premium and then sell the shares. So that's where this 8% kind of premium used to come from. That eventually disappeared. So what these companies had to do was start trying to find that premium elsewhere. So one was Anchor, which even though the mechanism was broken, was still a 20% yield, so pretty juicy. And you could make an argument that could have lasted a much longer time um, if it had gotten bigger. Then yeah, you also had just trading, which maybe goes into the whole Al Alameda thing that happened now, um, and just uh, lending it out to trading desks. So. 
I don't think that should be what retail investors invest in. That is a hedge fund. And if you're investing a hedge fund, you should have the, almost the entire upside and then a management fee gets paid, not you get 5%, the company takes risk and they get to keep all the juice on the top. So with Real Yield and Minky, we only give you the yield that is generated by essentially lending your crypto out to borrower, like the exact borrower on the other side in a peer-to-peer -peer sense. So that is through Aave mainly, which is one of the most popular DeFi lending products. So how Aave works, you deposit your USDC, someone is coming in with Ethereum or some other collateral, they're locking that up and over collateralizing their position and they're paying you interest to borrow your USDC. So that's where most of it's generated. We have some other protocols on top of that to get a little bit more yield, like mStable. They actually started in Melbourne as well. They actually also just deposit the funds in Aave, but there are low slippage swaps between stable coins on the platform as well. So not only do you get the lending yield, but you also get some yield or fees from when people swap between stable coins. Yeah, and you addressed earlier that you started Minky in response to say a lot of the issues that are existing in the space at the time. And I think a lot a lot of people even now have issues with the way that certain wallets work or missing functionality or uh, misplaced UX. What what actually are the big decisions that, the big design, grand design decisions that went into starting a wallet? Yeah, it was really just to make wallets not the sidekick anymore. I think it's still the case maybe with Mingy today, like we haven't 100% achieved our goals, but I still feel like wallets exist as a sidekick to an exchange or maybe what other centralized platform you're using. You kind of need a centralized product on top of the wallet to make it work. I don't think that should be the case in the future. We want to enable a world where people can 100% live in crypto and 100% live in self-custody. So, yeah, a lot of things need to happen there. Um, I guess the big thing that we've solved now on the usability side is being gasless. So right now in an exchange, you can kind of just move your money like you would in a bank. There's no transaction. Oh, there might be trading fees, but um, you just move that single asset. In most wallets now, you need to pay gas fees or in crypto now you have to pay gas fees. So that is usually with um, the protocol's native token. So that could be... ETH on Ethereum, Matic on Polygon, BNB on Binance Smart Chain. So with Minky, we use relayer technology. So before sending your transaction, we kind of send it through a relayer that will actually pay your gas fees for you. So instead of sending USDC on Polygon and having to have this gas paying token, you can just send that USDC almost like a centralized platform um, just as a single token. So you don't need to hold these multiple tokens to power the wallet, which is much easier for someone that is for the first time using a self-custody wallet. They don't have to think, oh, why do I have to these two tokens? What is gas? Uh, it just functions like a regular fintech for them. And is Minky as it stands compatible across the, the, range, the entire range of tokens or how, how are you guys operational at the moment? Yeah, so... We support three, I guess, blockchain networks now. So our main one is Polygon because that's where we can completely pay the gas fees. Then on Ethereum, we don't do that just because 
that is very expensive to pay the gas fees. Um, but on BSC, uh, which we recently launched, you can pay your gas fees in stable coins. So um, yeah, you pay a fee, but you don't have to have that secondary BNB token. So uh, we support those three networks now. Uh, we will try to support as many EVM networks as possible, um, which actually have adoption in the markets we're going after. There are probably 50 EVM networks now, but I would say probably only four to five actually have usage or real usage. And then, yeah, we also will look to support non-EVM networks as well. Um, Tron is actually a, a network that maybe gets a lot of heat from the Western crypto crowd and people just think it's a big scam. But actually Tron usage is more than Ethereum in some countries. So like Nigeria, Ghana, um, even Turkey as well. So to actually do what we want to and like achieve our overall goals, we will need to maybe, yeah, suck up our ego a little bit, even though yeah, Tron is very centralized and say, hey, it, it is still solving a problem in a place where people's currencies are depreciating a lot. And yeah, just give them what they need. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of alluded to it there as well, but Minky's North Star is kind of providing stable, uh, good yielding savings products for people in hyperinflationary environments where those things are less available, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a big part of it. So uh, protecting your wealth with, with stable coins, but also being able to completely stay in stable coins. So we don't want it to just be people's savings in the long term. We want it to be their spending money, um, their investments as well. Um, but right now, I guess that whole stack yeah, isn't fully built out, but it's also very hard in any wallet. So, um, yeah, so that you can essentially 100% live in crypto. Yeah. And so based on that, obviously, in, in a lot of the markets that you guys tackle, you do have those hyperinflationary environments and people can't trust uh, the value of one unit of currency from one day to another. What are, what, what are the common objections, if any, uh, to crypto in those kind of environments that you guys have come across? Yeah, to be honest, there's a more of a common objection to Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin was the original like crypto that was supposed to come in and solve this problem. But it has been so volatile that in a sense, it's actually still been better than a lot of currencies, whether that's like the Lebanese pound or the Turkish lira. So in that case, it's yes, but it moves up and down so wildly that people haven't been able to use it for transactions. So in some cases, it's almost it's almost looked at as the dirty money or the dirty crypto. Um, now that you have Tether, you can just, or yeah, it's Tether was mainly used, or USDC, you can just use it as this kind of flat currency um, that replaces their currency and is completely stable um, in, in a relative sense. Is currency stability the only thing that you guys look at when deciding on new markets to explore? Yeah, so we don't really focus on markets that are, I don't really like this terminology, but in a sense, too far gone. So places where you're not really using your local currency at all anymore. So for example, Venezuela. So Venezuela, people are making origami on the street with their old bolivars. They're trying to introduce a new currency. But actually, in Venezuela right now, 34% of small retail transactions happen with stablecoins. But 
which which is awesome, and we're we're very happy about that. But I guess from a business perspective, um, if people are paying peer to peer directly in stable coins, the no middleman or trustlessness of that means there's actually no way to make a fee. So, in a pure business sense, we are really going after the countries that are maybe on the path there. So uh, I mentioned how Brazil is our largest market right now. So if you look at Latin America, the two countries that have seen the most sustained currency depreciation are Venezuela and Argentina. I think both their stories have been widely shared, especially in the cryptoverse. But after that, it's Brazil. Um, and it, to be honest, like US dollars aren't really used as a medium of exchange there at all. Um, in maybe some small cases when uh, you, maybe you're buying a car and you're trying to save up for that and then you don't want to make and that saving period is taking one to two years so then maybe you try to say okay can I just pay in dollars I've been saving in dollars but generally day-to-day -day transactions are still made in the local currency so if you do want to store most of your wealth in crypto you need to spend in your lo local currency still. So you're gonna need to convert that crypto. So right now that's going back from your exchange back out to your bank account, withdrawing cash or spending on a card or then spending from your bank account, which is two to three platforms, sometimes two to three days, depending on the country as well. I think in the US actually it's seven days to with sometimes withdraw from an exchange. Um, that's a, a Huge reason actually people used FTX because they had some of the quickest withdrawals with ACH back to your bank account, which unfortunately went very poorly. But yeah, so that, that process takes a long time. So you're kind of always managing, okay, how much money do I want to keep in my local currency? How much money do I want to keep in dollars and in crypto? So what Minky wants to do on the spend side is actually be able to let people spend on demand. So through cards, through local payment networks, or anything like any mobile money integrations. Whenever you want to go from dollars in the form of stable coins to back to your local currency, you can just do that like any FinTech. And yeah, we pull it directly from your wallet at time of purchase through token approvals. So it sounds like you're going, rather than the wallet route being more of a full stack neobank, savings, spending, cards, Exactly. That, that's yeah. what we want to achieve in the longer term. Um, actually, even in, in the medium term, uh, we think you should live from this self-custody core where all your funds are, they're completely safe, they're not in an exchange. You can access the wonderful world of crypto, um, whether that be NFTs, because you need to start from a self-custody core. But then, yeah, you can still do everything you would do in your fintech. So I guess in an Australian sense, like an up banking or even just your normal banking apps, um, you can do that straight from your crypto wallet, which we think will take self-custody in crypto to that next billion users. And then going even beyond that, what, what do you see that, say, crypto, crypto neobanking can enable that, say, like a traditional fintech, like an up bank, can't? Yeah, so I think once you start from this place of self-custody, a lot more innovation can be built. I, I think we saw that last cycle when, to be honest, as a DeFi person, after DeFi summer we, and you had all these cool yields and all this innovation happening there, we thought, wow, everybody's going to come to this. And a lot of these CeFi products were built 
But actually what brought new people into this space last cycle was NFTs um, and speculating and flipping NFTs. And that led to this huge wave of adoption of self-custody because the only way you could really do that and interact with OpenSea was with MetaMask or these other like wallets like Rainbow. And it's our belief in the next two to three cycles that the new innovations that bring people into the space will be in self-custody wallets. I guess I don't have every answer on what that will be, but there are a lot of cool things being built. Um, there's some things like pool together, which are lossless lotteries um, that are really popular. There's even more kind of social savings products. So there's a product called Good Ghosting that we've had a conversation with that it's a savings pool that you need to deposit every period, let's say every week. But if you don't make that weekly deposit, you drop out of the pool. You can still take your principal, but then your interest goes um, to the people that are still saving every week. So it's kind of gamifies savings. And then it makes the APY or the yield much larger. So that then the yield becomes 17, 27% annually because you have this kind of social gamified aspect to it. Um, that could only be done really in a self-custody wallet at like at scale, and that innovation can only really quickly happen at scale um, through a self-custody wallet. And yeah, these are the things that I think are really innovative and will bring pe new people into crypto. So that's why we think, yeah, let's start at this self-custodial wallet core, um, but then try to add this regulated stuff on the edges to yeah enable you to fully live there. So on, on that note, what are, what are the bits that on those fringes that really do need to be regulated? Um, so, yeah, I guess when you interface with your local economy and you interface with Fiat, then you do need to be regulated. Um, it's just, I guess, the law. So, um, yeah, we are in the process of setting up entities in Brazil um, and then in the future in other jurisdictions, hopefully throughout Latin, um, that will enable us to yeah, provide cards, provide payment products. Um, and then, yeah, of course, when you go back crypto to Fiat, you will need to KYC there, but it's like any other product. Yeah. And what what sort of, when you're talking about this crypto to Fiat stuff, are you looking to develop your own payment gateways? Or how, how do you view that sort of crypto payments landscape at the moment? Mm -hmm. uh, not looking to develop our own. So there's a lot of players that are already... I guess service providers like a Stripe in this space, let's say, or a MoonPay on the on-ramp side. Maybe not directly they're converting your crypto to fiat, but there's already the gateway for fiat. So you have people like Marketa um, who power Coinbase's card um, in the US. You have DLocal, which is a, I think they're Uruguayan actually, they're a unicorn now that powers a lot of the crypto payments or crypto on-ramps in Latam. So, we will, depending on the country, we will partner with one of these providers. But actually converting crypto to fiat, that conversion actually doesn't happen in real time for us. So we, at no point do we want to custody your funds while you still own them. We want to leave them in your wallet. You can almost set like a limit on your card through a token approval. And then at time of purchase, we will pull that from your wallet. and. The merchant will receive fiat, but that will kind of be in a reserve for us. So yes, there'll be some Forex management that we'll need to do, but from your side, um, you're just converting crypto to fiat on demand. You also, you brought in, you brought in the point earlier about the innovations that are enabled by self-custody. 
obviously, there, and there are a million different philosophical standpoints on this, uh, but the self-custody is a touchy issue for a lot of people because I think a lot of people might not trust themselves not to lose their private keys. As, as someone who is a provider of self-custodial wallets, how do you build up, I guess, almost even people's trust in themselves or in the crypto, inst- crypto institutions uh, that they're working with to have faith mm. in self-custody? Yeah, so I guess maybe one reason for focusing on emerging markets like Brazil is because that job is a lot easier than in a Western market. Uh, To give some history on Brazil, um, Brazil went through a hyperinflationary period in the late 80s and early 90s when the government just decided, hey, all your savings in your bank uh, over this amount, it's frozen now. Um, You can't access it. This is how we're going to beat inflation. So most Brazilians today understand why you should keep a portion of your money, even if it's just cash, um, outside of your bank account and self-custody that. That's the same case in Argentina and Venezuela. Um, the government, even if people had US dollars in their banking accounts, they've said, okay, those aren't dollars anymore. We've changed them to pesos. So it's a bit easier in these countries. Um, I think, yeah, Lebanon, people are robbing the banks right now to get their own money out. So. That argument there is easier, but that I think is still at the maybe the true, a bit farther than the true believer stage, but it's still early adopters. So, how do we get to scale? Is really getting to um, that mass market and building better technical solutions. I think a lot of things have gotten better since like early wallets, so like your jacks and the bread wallets that were used in 2017, 2018, where that give you a seed phrase, you had to write it down, then you had to confirm that seed phrase and put, okay, what's letter, what's word 12 and write that in. So now there's tools on the, let's say the EOA side, like Minkia is now, where we can back up an, an encrypted file to your iCloud or Google Drive that yeah, only you can unlock with the password that will back up your seed phrase. But there's also a lot of cool tech being built um, on other aspects as well that we're going to look to integrate into the feature. So MPC is um, multi-party computational technology. So you can kind of think of that as a shard of your key so that you will have an aspect of your key. Maybe Minky or a provider that Minky uses has a shard and then you put another shard in your Google Drive. So you don't have any seed phrase at all there. You're just backing up these files in different spaces, or maybe you have a password. Yeah, they have a portion of the seed phrase. So that makes it feel a lot more just like a web to login. And um, that's pretty impressive as well, because that still maintains self-custody while keeping this yeah this ease of user um, experience. So there's that. Uh, there's also smart contract wallets. So that's other than an EOA, which is an externally owned account, which most people are using Ethereum and other EVM chains like now. So again, you don't have a seed phrase, you just have a password and your email login or there's some social recovery. And through that, you can essentially say, hey, there's a function on this smart contract that allows me to recover my wallet in case I lose my logins or yeah, lose my phone. So that is another possible way I think adoption will be improved on self-custody. There are some problems there. Um, Smart contract wallets have high gas fees. That should be improved a little bit in the future. But um, 
with smart contract wallets also, they can only really live on EVM chains now. So EVM is Ethereum virtual machine. So if you do want to support something like Tron or even support something like Bitcoin, you can't do that with a smart contract wallet today. So you're really confining yourself to the Ethereum space. Staying, staying on the adoption point, how, how, what was your initial plan with Minky for going to market? Uh, in in a lot of these countries that I guess for yourself are, are far away from where you are and very early in Minky's life cycle were spread quite far across the world even from one another. So what was what was the plan there I guess for going to market and then the unlocks for growth uh, within those markets and then for expansion? Mm-hmm. So actually when Minky started, we started as a DeFi yield product and we thought let's just go after Western markets. The yields were much higher, they were much better than your bank. But after the Luna implosion and the implosion of all those CFI products, uh, yields imploded and also people's trust in crypto savings products imploded. So we kind of realized that, yeah, you'd never be able to convince someone in a Western market. So let's go to an emerging market. And we already had some organic growth in Brazil and that was translated in Portuguese. So, um, and the engagement had backed up that decision at the time. But I guess, how did we unlock that next stage of growth? Especially me being in Australia, um, I guess the rest of the team is Brazilian, but that just comes down to hiring. Uh, I think sometimes people will say, oh, at an early stage, and you be the one leading it. But really, if you are to achieve a billion users or even tens of millions, that are is gonna need to be in different countries and you're gonna have to place a lot of trust in people that really know those markets best. So yeah, we went out and hired. So uh, Vinny is our head of growth in Brazil. He was previously leading Nexo's team in Brazil as well. So has really great experience in the market. Uh, is gun as a growth guy. So yeah, finding really great teammates that understand the market and then can go execute, placing your trust in them and learning a lot and being able to, I guess, share your experience from a Western market, but um, letting them drive those efforts in the emerging market. And then on that note, what, what were the big lessons, challenges and advantages of having such a remote team early on? Yeah, the challenges are the time zone, which like you mentioned at the start, it sucks of being in Australia. Um, I'm actually yeah, planning on moving to Lisbon in the new year to just be on a better time zone with the team. But yeah, I've actually always worked remotely. So in my past job, um, we were remote first team as well with people in Brazil and with people in Europe. So I've been doing this for six years now, so it doesn't seem that bad. But um, now, I guess, with the core of the business and your users actually being in Brazil, that is a bit challenging. Um, so yeah, you need to be connected, I guess, and what's happening in real time without this 24 hour delay, essentially, to seeing, okay, when I wake up, what happened yesterday? So what were people saying yesterday? So that is a bit of a challenge, just managing the time zones. Um, in terms of managing a remote team, I think I've learned those lessons over time, but yeah, I guess for listeners, um, yeah, with a remote team, I think the biggest lesson I've learned over the past six years is just constantly communicating your goals and the direction of the team. Um, sharing presentations um, every three to four weeks, kind of doing a recap on, hey, this is what we achieved. Here's what went right. Here's what went wrong. These next four weeks, this is our goal. Here's our general goal and have this, and this is how it plays into it. And these are the 
five to six things that we need to get done this month um, so we can achieve that. That kind of just happens naturally in a in-person office environment. You're going for lunch, you're going back and forth all the time, you're tapping people on the shoulder, but that doesn't happen in a remote work environment. So you really have to create the spaces um, and put in the effort so everybody's on the same page and everybody's motivated to one, yeah, to getting to one common enterprise essentially. And on, on that point, right, what is, what is the common enterprise on a five to 10 year time horizon for you guys? Yeah, uh, like I said, we want to enable a world where people 100% live in crypto. So um, that is right now, I guess, it, to be honest right now, it's still very much on the growth side for us. So let us, let us get those users um, and we're doing different things to power that growth and like build that community. So maybe it doesn't look ex on the entire team side exactly what is going into that a hundred that 10 years cycle but yeah it changes i think depending where you're all at in your journey like at the start and startup life what i found is you're not everywhere but sometimes you're going after these very short-term goals just to kind of get to that next stage but as you mature um, when you're in year four year five of the company then maybe 50 60 percent of your time is really spent trying to build this long-term differentiating things where if you're at the start of your journey, you're really still trying to find product market fits and still trying to grow that early community. So you might have to be a bit more scrappy and things maybe don't seem long-term focused, but yeah, you just need to get to that next stage. You pointed a bit there towards user acquisition and that being a, I guess, short to midterm focus. In, in the early days, where have been the really successful levers for you guys in terms of bringing on new users in new markets? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about getting in front of communities. So we are still at the early stage where we are bringing people into crypto. I think we're just at the stage in the general macro environment or the crypto market environment where people are already into crypto. You're not going to get someone that's never touched crypto before, especially in Brazil where adoption is so big. So uh, where are these people hanging out now? So um, that could be in influencer communities or following certain influencers, so partnering with them. We have a course in Brazil that we didn't make ourselves, but we partnered with an influencer to make so we could access his community and then got other influencers to share that course and teach people about Minky. So that's kind of influencer community side. We also have just crypto community side. So yeah, DAOs are very popular um, places that people hang out in crypto these days that didn't exist last cycle. So um, in Australia, there's DAO Under, which is a pretty active discord, which a lot of crypto people hang out in. Uh, but in, in Brazil, you have um, Bankless actually. So there's a Bankless sub DAO called Bankless Brazil. So you have a lot of people learning about crypto there and doing different crypto quests so yeah we partnered with them did some sponsorships did some podcasts and then yeah we, we also partner with like altcoins as well being a wallet we have an exchange function so like exchanges used to grow by listing certain tokens um maybe people didn't like that with coinbase and <laughs> the quality of some of their tokens that they listed but that was a great way for Coinbase to acquire new users and get into certain communities. When people, when Coinbase or even Binance at the time listed a token, it was this huge celebration in the community. Like, wow, we got listed on Coinbase. Let me sign up from, 
for Coinbase and me buying more of the token because I think it's gonna go up in price now. So we take a very similar approach. There are a lot of altcoins that aren't on these major exchanges now that are only available on DEXs like Uniswap or PancakeSwap. So if they're a quality project, we list them on Minky, share it with the community, um, and that really amplifies our message. And yeah, that, that helps us yeah, get new users. I think you bring, bring up a very interesting point there. And I think the, the follow-up question to that is with, with a lot of these altcoins, what are the filters for quality or community value when you decide to list them? Yeah, so there's the technical aspects. So just reviewing the contracts, making sure yeah, people can't be rugged. Um, there is the liquidity behind it. So yeah, is there an active community? Is there volume? Um, is there enough liquidity stakes? So there, there's that aspect as well. Um, they're just trying to get to know the team. Um, yeah, that sometimes is harder depending on the altcoin. Maybe sometimes they're anonymous. No, no I don't think we actually have listed any anon anonymous tokens at this point but just trying to get that background to make sure they are not scammers. So yeah, that part is challenging. Um, yeah, you have to have the right disclosures and, and let people know, but um, yeah, I think yeah, every exchange, every wallet goes through the same challenges. Yeah, and I think the other one you brought up earlier was about these shifting narratives and you've talked a lot about cycle to cycle, new things changing and Minky itself being built out of, I guess, changes in narrative as cycles come along and go. Feels like we're at a bit of a turning point now uh, because of the events of the last two weeks. What do you think might be some of the defining characteristics of this next set of narratives and how might Minky be able to capitalize on those? Yeah, so I don't want to say we're excited about what happened, but um, um, yeah, like, uh, yeah, so what, I guess for people listening to this later on, um, so with the FTX collapse, um, a lot of people lost a significant amount of funds. But I think one narrative that can come out of the ashes is self-custody. Um, and what you can actually do with a self-custodial wallet now, because if you look at 2017, the only thing you could do in that self-custodial wallet was store your crypto and send it. It was almost useless. Uh, the, other than the point of like taking it off an exchange, which was still a big win, um, it was very hard to get people onto a wallet itself. Then in, I, I guess it was 2018, 2019, Uniswap launched. Most wallets still didn't have it, but 2020, now you could finally swap in a wallet very similar to an exchange now. Um, and now, like with all the innovation in DeFi, you can stake as well. So really everything that you do in an exchange today, you can do in a wallet like Minky or yeah, there's a handful of wallets, I would say. I wouldn't say there's hundreds of wallets that have that, but there's a, I would say maybe 10 wallets that uh, do that with good quality trading and staking products, um, the products being the underlying protocols itself. So I think that is going to be a big narrative of the next cycle because yeah you couldn't do that in until maybe 18 to 24 months ago and now you're even going to have further innovation on that where it's not just getting on to par with an exchange but you're going to have all these things that you can only do in a wallet so maybe there's better nft trading experiences like you have maybe with blur on desktop now or you have um yeah more innovative like we talked about different saving experience social saving experiences so maybe you had these in a wallet 
Um, and I think that is really what brings new people into the space. And I think that should hopefully be an exciting narrative over the next cycle, because yeah, really, to be honest, the future of our industry depends on self-custody, in, in my opinion. When I first looked at Bitcoin myself, I saw Mt. Gox and I thought, wow, one, this is going to get hacked or the government is going to take this down because this is the dodgiest looking website I've ever seen. I ever tried to transfer um, my my Canadian, I studied in Canada, so my Canadian dollars at the time through like, um, through a wire to Japan. And I said, nobody's ever going to do this. You're just going to lose all your money. and. Yes, like the interfaces and the exchanges have gotten more regulated today, but I think what we have learned is, yeah, that really popular crypto saying, or two popular, like one, trust or verify, don't trust verify, and not your keys, not your coins. And the reality is in a centralized exchange, those risks will always be there and you can really never have 100% trust. Um, and to be honest, there is no reason to... F- keep all your crypto there today with all the innovation going on. So, um, yeah, we, ho- we hope that that narrative picks up um, after, yeah, all the sorrow after these six few weeks. Yeah. Like, like a lot of the most interesting sort, I'd call them like consumer crypto brands. I think like a lot of, a lot of crypto brands can tend to find themselves to be consumer crypto, but you're working directly with retail customers. You see a lot of uh, these emerging countries. And you mentioned, you alluded to it earlier with the higher preference for Tron than we might get in developed countries, sort of crypto versus. What, what are the other sort of big differences you see in terms of retail habits in emerging markets and then retail habits in developed markets crypto? Yeah, so... On the Tron piece, it was just because Tron was the first mover as a low-cost blockchain. So I think the average transaction cost on Tron is about a cent or maybe two to three cents compared to Ethereum at the time when it was about $10, especially during the hype of the market and a lot of on-chain activity happening. So really Tron was just the first mover and they've just had such huge network effects over the last three to four years that that's really hard to displace so yes you have much lower cost chains like polygon now with a lot more features but yeah it is arguable if that will actually outpace tron um, with yeah with those network effects already being built um so another aspect of emerging markets i guess is that you create crypto isn't just used for speculation so right now in the depths of a bear market it is very hard to find anybody new to crypto entering the space. Um, we're not doing it at all right now, but I can imagine people that are having a very tough time because yeah, even if I asked any of my normal friends to go invest in Bitcoin or go invest in Ethereum now, I, I don't think I would even find one out of 20 that would put $100 in just because how scared they are after the FTX saga. But yeah, crypto in an emerging market isn't just that. That It's not just trying to make money. Like I said, mentioned before, it is this store of wealth where people are having their wealth in stable coins. So, um, and with savings, it's okay. I Even if crypto's up, crypto's down, my local currency is still going down in value and I need to protect that wealth. 
So I'm still buying stable coins. I'm still staying around in this crypto ecosystem. And I, to be honest, I'm still investing because I'm still using my wallet. I'm still in the communities. Um, I know that some of these tokens are really hitting major goals. Like I'm not financial advice, but for example, because we are in Polygon, we try to share a lot of Polygon news and Matic news. And yeah, Polygon's team has been doing great things. They've had partnerships with Disney, with Nike, um, yeah, Instagram as well, where you can show your Polygon NFTs on Instagram and Mint NFTs. In the height of a bull market, this would result in a 50% pump in price, but now it doesn't even change the price at all. But I think these are the, the efforts that will pay dividends in a bull market. And because people are sticking around and just saving, they have that dry powder essentially to see all these things. And yeah, when they say that, oh, maybe I should invest in some Polygon now. So I think that's the difference. People are just still hanging around in crypto due to necessity rather than um, because they need to speculate. As, as a bit of a follow-up there, because I think it's very interesting that you bring up Polygon as well, because a lot of a lot of what at least I see, say like in the Twitterverse is Polygon has a lot of partnerships. This is the indicator for crypto adoption among the masses. Yeah. Uh, do you, is there still that sort of bias towards partnerships as an indicator for reach in emerging markets or is it less of a factor for what you guys look at? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I should say this, but sometimes a lot of the partnerships are a lot of fluff. Uh, so like, uh, like uh, I think I had one meme that I posted of Polygon doing this Disney accelerator. It's like Polygon's a $10 billion company. They're like the grown man in an accelerator full of kids. So I, there's one, I guess if you go back to 2017 and you remembered all these like fluff partnerships that would come out, like uh, Chain is doing this partnership here, but it was really nothing. And then you'd have the company coming out and say, hey, there's actually no partnership. I just paid for this. So uh, coming from that bias, I think, yeah, I don't really like the partnership aspect, but I do understand it from a business development side. And I think Polygon has kicked some major goals there because they have had this, I guess, depth of partnership. So if you are a big institution and you're looking to do something in crypto, you've seen them doing things with Nike, Starbucks, um, in Brazil, Nubank, and you think, oh, well, I don't know anything about crypto. I'm not going to take the risk and say, oh, I'm going to go do this on Aptos now uh, because I think it's a better network or a better tech. So everybody's doing it on Polygon. I don't want to lose my job. I must also do it on Polygon as well, right? So I think that's important because, yeah, some of the, to get new people on, you do have to sometimes go through these Web2 channels um, like Instagram. So I think they're doing some awesome things there. Um, some of it's fluff, but yeah, some of it is very, very real and yeah, going to have, I think, major impacts on adoption. Yeah. To, to inject a bit more positivity, I guess, outside of self-custodial wallets, uh, what, what's really exciting you in the space at the moment? Yeah, I really like the game, some of the GameFi things. I, I've been trying to play around. I'm a horrible gamer, so it's hard. But um, how I got into DeFi at the time was, yeah, through like my last project, meeting a lot of friends, seeing what they were doing. Um, I remember getting Explain MakerDAO to me and then just trying to use MakerDAO, trying to play with different DeFi products and then understood how it works, where the space was going, could make some investments as well. Um, now, I think 
one of the prevailing narratives is GameFi will be this huge thing for adoption. To be honest, I haven't seen any specific GameFi instance yet, but I think some will emerge. Um, like I said, I'm not a huge gamer, so it's very hard for me to do it, but seemingly some VCs, maybe they've hired gamers or they're trying their best because a lot of GameFi projects are getting built. Uh, yeah, uh, we can make a fab. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, right, right now, I think the bad thing that I see is like a lot of these GameFi products are just off-chain games that have this currency and then you can earn the currency and cash it out. It's not really any innovation happening there. But I think somebody will crack it and introduce some really cool token, tokenomics or token economies uh, where you really need crypto to power this game. So, yeah, with all the money being poured into the space, I think something will emerge there at some point. Uh, I'm just not exactly sure what it is or um, what it looks like. And if you, if you weren't in the space at all, what do you reckon you'd be doing with yourself now? If I weren't in the space at all, well, I wouldn't be like Sam and trading orange juice features at all. <laughs> Not, I am in crypto, I, I would say, for this idealist perspective. Um, I guess maybe it's not the company's goal, but um, I guess the thing I really like about crypto is that um, sovereign nature of it. Like you can fully own your money. Um, we can eventually get to this decentralized currency. So. To be honest, what what would I like to do? I'd probably still be working in like some tech role. I think to be honest, I, I think the biggest impact we can have on civilized one of the biggest impacts we can have on civilization is getting to this decentralized currency, kind of the separation of money and state. Um, and I think it's just an amazing problem to be working on and like m m uh, contributing to essentially not contributing to the problem, but contributing to solving it. I think maybe the other biggest problem is things in like climate technology. I know nothing about that, but I think that's probably one of the other biggest problems facing civilization today. And yeah, if I knew something about that, I'd also like to contribute there, but I don't, <laughs> my brain's too small. <laughs> one at a time. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess sort of the final question that I'll ask, and one, one that I am very excited to ask you in particular, because I understand that you're quite steeped in history. Um, having to work with all these inflationary environments is. Do you have a favorite piece of trivia? Favorite piece of trivia? Um, yeah, I'd say uh, one I'll ask to maybe VCs on my pitch is like how many currencies has Brazil had in the last 30 years? I'd guess four. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was on the that was on the opposite side as well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's it's quite a lot. Um, and I think yeah, Brazil is, I think, an example of a flourishing democracy now. Two hundred and thirty million people, and um, the economy has grown in a, yeah crazy amounts since maybe that hyperinflationary period, and and really gotten more robust too. But there is still that history uh, behind it. And I, there's a cool Planet Money podcast um, about Brazil's currency and how they went from uh, the Cruzeiro to the new Cruzeiro to, I think it's called the VST, which was this middle currency, and then eventually to the RIAI, um, and how that system came in place, how this crazy economist came in. Uh, yeah, highly recommend checking out that podcast from Planet Money. I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes. Um, yeah, th thank you so much 
for coming on, Josh. And I think I think that that piece of trivia right there at the end also shows that what you guys are working on at Minky is is really a problem worth solving. Um, so yeah, but thank you very much. All the best. Yeah, thanks, Archie. Thanks so much for listening to that latest episode of Hands' Protocol Weekly. I deeply hope you enjoyed it. If you want to stay up to date with our podcast every week, follow the firm or myself on Twitter at hands underscore network or at AHR Whitford. Even better, uh, if you're a best case scenario where this episode has motivated you to start your own protocol, I'd recommend heading to our website at hands.network and reaching out to the Accelerator Investments team through our founder forms there. I've been your host, Archie Whitford. Thanks for tuning in and look forward to next time.